maybe this is the hot take, but when you roll out new comp plans, like roll it out to your leaders and like give them a chance to provide feedback, right? And you'd be surprised actually, like, you know, your especially your leaders, they they wear and they need to wear two hats. One is like supporting their people, but then also kind of supporting the company, right? Helping the company achieve its goals. Welcome to RevOps Rockstars in pursuit of unicorns. I'm David Carnes. And I'm Jaren Chu. Join us as we interview RevOps leaders to explore the challenges they have faced, the biggest lessons they've learned, and what they think makes a RevOps rockstar. This show is brought to you by OpFocus on a mission to help companies run their businesses better by letting you focus on growth while we scale your operations. Let's get this show on the road. Today's guest on the podcast is a RevOps leader that we can't wait to hear from. He's a strategy and operations executive with 15 years of diverse tech industry experience. He's an expert in full go-to-market strategy, data-driven decision-making, scalable processes, and team leadership and development. He was also honored as one of Utah's uh, businesses, 40 Under 40. Uh, let's welcome Brandon Bussey, SVP of Revenue Operations at Entrada to the show. Welcome, Brandon. Welcome, um, and thanks uh, for the invite and excited to be here. Brandon, what is something in RevOps that you had to learn the hard way in the last 15 years of tech industry experience? For sure. I mean, I've, I'd love to pretend like I make no mistakes in my career, but um, definitely have learned some hard lessons. But the ones that I think are have, that I've learned that have been most impactful have not just been this master or massive catastrophe, but instead was kind of like these reoccurring issues that keep coming up um, and having to kind of go back and learn from. So two that just kind of come to mind. One is uh, one of the big kind of pieces of my role is designing compensation plans. And, um, you know, some large scale companies kind of have it dialed in, right? But most of my career, especially kind of in the comp design space has been in kind of high growth companies where you're still trying to figure out exactly what you're trying to incentivize, right? Um, and so as a result, um, every year your comp plans are shifting. Like maybe you want to incentivize a new product, et cetera, and things like that. And so one of the things that, you know, I always um, have to remind myself largely because I think I have this analytics background. So I'll go, we'll go build models um, and try and predict, hey, if we do this, it's going to have this outcome is, you know, especially when it comes to compensation, you know, you're building a model based on a behavior that wasn't incentivized in the past. And if you just pure, perfectly extract that to like, this new scenario, it's not going to correlate. Uh, sure, there's there's learnings, and I think that's a very important exercise. But you always have to think about okay, uh, and it might seem a little intuitive, but you might have this whole model that says, hey, if we incentivize this product, this is what we can expect. Well, now with this incentive um, incentive, the pendulum may swing much further than than you had anticipated. And so, any way you can kind of pull in that qualitative feedback, I mean, whether it's sitting down with the rep and like you know, over drinks or, you know, at the coffee shop or something saying, Hey, you know, what, how would you react if you did this? What would, how would your, um, your, your operating rhythm change? And you can kind of start to get a sense of, okay, this is what my model model is spitting out, but it's likely going to be 10 to 15% higher. And you can create scenarios too. Right. And that's, I think the important thing. So I think in the past, there's been times where I've, I don't want to say missed the mark, but didn't fully consider 
that that kind of nuance uh, when designing new comp plans. The other one that jumps out at me and and uh, uh, and is really setting clear expectations with like the executive team or the board or whoever kind of is mandating some sort of change. A good example is if you're rolling out a new product, and this is maybe kind of my go-to example, um, you know, they might be all gung-ho of saying, hey, we love this. We want to launch it, you know, next fiscal year, um, which is great. And you might be all aligned on pricing, packaging, all that. But then there's a slew of other things that, sure, you don't need to get into the details. And that's really important of not taking like your executive team or, you know, whoever is kind of the approver all the way down to, you know, the nuances of, of whatnot, but you do need to get their input on some of these things. I see too many people, myself included, kind of in the early days where you just stop and say, okay, we're good with this January one launch. Let's go roll it out. Well, how are you going to apply this to an existing customers? Say it's a new product suite or a new pricing and packaging. What is their expectation? Because I I've been in situations where I've rolled something out and intuitively I said, you know what, like let's focus on new customers and then take like, you know, 18 months to roll it out to existing customers. Cause you know, there's going to be a lot of nuances and negotiation that have to happen. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, six months come around and the executives or someone in charge will be like, how are we doing with adoption with existing, with our existing portfolio? And you kind of get caught with your tail between your legs. She's like, oh, well, we've actually been focusing on new logo. And it's like, well, where did you come up with that? Why well, had made the erroneous assumption. And so I think many times of like really taking the time when you have kind of a new initiative or a large scale project to kind of just set expectations with some of the, some of the other aspects. I think, you know, pricing and packaging or product is probably one of the biggest things of, okay, yeah, we obviously want this for new customers, but how are we going to apply it to our existing customer base? Um, you know, how is it going to apply to renewals and all these different types of things? And so you, it's a balancing act for sure, because the pendulum can swing to the other end to where you're just like taking them into the weeds, but just making sure that, you're talking about some of these key strategic decisions and there's alignment. So when six months rolls around, you can be like, yep, exactly as we discussed in, in the next six months is when we're going to really start targeting our existing portfolio or things like that. And so I think really driving that alignment upwards is really important. I think sometimes we feel like we don't want to push too hard or take them into the weeds. So we like kind of go the total opposite direction. So those are kind of two lessons that I've, I've guess I've had to learn kind of over uh, multiple little hard ways. What you're sharing is so compelling, Brandon. There's themes in both of these lessons, which include, you know, hey, no matter how thoughtful we are in approaching something, be that in the models that we're creating or in terms of the rollout plan we have, it's also about making sure we get input wide and far, including end user input, right? In the sales example, the comp plan example, it's actually getting the feedback of a person who would be subject to, to that uh, compensation plan, what would their response be? And in, in your second example, your second lesson and takeaway, um, it's making sure that the, that communication and that input from the executives is continuous, right? It's not a one-time, hey, launch it and forget it sort of scenario. It is a collaborative and continuous check-in effort when it goes yeah. live. So Brandon, Entrada is about a 2000 person organization. Uh, your title is SVP of revenue operations. What does that entail? Um, this is kind of one of my favorite discussion points because, so maybe I'm going to give you a little bit intro to myself um, while I answer this question, because it's been fun to watch the evolution of RevOps. When I first started my career, I started in FP&A um, 
and was doing a lot of what now today is RevOps as a finance person, right? And RevOps, sales ops, any of that really didn't, I mean, it existed maybe in some sense, but not at some of these companies that I was at. Um, and so it's been fun to kind of watch that evolution. Um, so, and it's still the one thing, I guess my, um, it's still evolving. And I think the one thing that I do love about it is you can adapt it to the needs of the company, right? I've been at some different companies where I came in and there was a massive finance org. Well, then you can partner with them and don't have to, I would build out a RevOps org very differently than if I came in one of my previous companies, there was very, very little finance or FP&A. And so as a result, we took on a lot of more traditional kind of um, you know, budgeting, forecasting, uh, took a much bigger role um, than you know the other the other example. So I think it really, you know, first and foremost, it really needs to adapt to the needs of the company um, and and kind of the other organization structures, right? If you have a really strong like business operations team, what you can leverage that, right? Um, in certain areas. But if you don't, you might need to, you know, build out some some various arms. So um I've kind of broken out most of my uh RevOps teams into kind of three, well, really four buckets, I would say. One, um, is like your deals deals teams, which can mean a lot of different things, right? You know, most of the time it'll include a traditional deal desk. Um, I think it's really important to have it in uh, RevOps, um, whereas traditionally I think it's kind of been in finance because there's such an operational element to it. Um, if it's just in, uh, maybe if you get to a really super you know, steady state, then it could move back to finance to where all they're literally doing is just approving deals and following kind of a rubric. But there's so much building. Um, there's such a, a with CPQ and some of these like quota um, tools or approvals tools that kind of govern their their operations and workflows. Like it just makes so much sense to be really with the other operational folks. And so um, and that can take other flavors. Like at when I was my previous company was Lucid Software. We had an um, we called it order management. It was kind of like a license provisioning slash booking slash um, auditing. Uh, and uh, even almost like a pre-billing team. Uh, and But that was because of our systems really like merited that. Now, there's, there, we were doing some tech, we were bringing in some additional tech, some new billing systems and things like that to, you know, evolve that team um, and, and hopefully, you know, not eliminate them, but like eliminate the need for the team and repurpose those individuals to other areas. Um, but that's kind of an example of uh, another way to kind of customize those needs. So that deals kind of deal operations as one arm. The second one is just really your core operations. These are things like commissions and compensation, setting quotas, a lot of the planning efforts and partnering with finance, um, your territories, building, constructing, and assigning territories, all of your rules of engagement that kind of govern those. And then the systems, the underlying systems that support that. Wow. So given all these topics that your role encompasses, how do you measure success? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I mean, I think ultimately, um, you know, I generally I will report up to a CRO, and um, my, you know, my success metric personally is his or her success metric, right? And it comes down to you know whatever your core 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 corporate goals are. Um, you know, like obviously you're probably gonna have like a revenue growth number. Um, you know, I like to look at like a productivity number. Um, and I like to look at like, obviously a retention number, like really focusing on those three things. It also helps then, um, your team and the RevOps team kind of focus on, Hey, is it going to move the needle on those three things? Cause I think too often we get 
enticed by really cool things that seem fun, like a cool software or, you know, a new process that's going to, you know, leverage a bunch of cool skills within Salesforce or whatever process, but is it going to actually really move the needle on any of those three things? Like, well, then maybe, maybe you focus on something that is, that isn't as sexy. Right. So I, I try to stick to those. Um, one of the things that we really try and do is, you know, most companies I've worked at will follow like an OKR methodology, which really is just like a, I mean, not to oversimplify it, but it's a quarterly goal setting. Right. And, but then setting those goals and, and really tracking that that's, that's generally how I like to, um, you know, determine, uh, you know, progress and, uh, and really contribution. And, and the other thing too, is like, we don't, I don't create our goals in isolation and just say like, here's, here's the RevOps OKRs. Like I'm sending them immediately out to, Hey, all the sales leaders, I want them to opine on it. You know, CS leaders, my boss, obviously even potentially external to, to the revenue Oregon, um, because, you know, I want them to pick it apart and just be like, you know what, like, why are you, why do you want to do X, Y, and Z? Like, I don't think that's going to be that needle moving. And we, we generally put together kind of like, or ROI or something like that. And, uh, but to justify it, but, uh, we can then have those discussions. Oh, that's so interesting. I'm curious, uh, either in your current role or your role at lucid, what's something that you wish you had done sooner? Yeah. Um, I think the biggest thing is just, um, you know, I, in RevOps, it, I always, I've been telling my team this for a long time. You're always going to be like understaffed and overworked. And, and that's just the case. Anytime you come into a new role, like you have to hit the, like, you're going to come in and you're just going to be bombarded with problems. And right. And like, I feel like I'm just kind of a natural problem solver. And then I'm like, okay, let's go fix it. And, um, and then I feel like I take like six months back. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. It's been six months. I need to pause and kind of really take a step back whether it's plan out the organization, you know, really set kind of our long-term goals or some of those, do that kind of high level, more strategic thinking, um, doing that. Now you don't want to do it right at the beginning because you're not informed, but like pretty early on start to say, Hey, here is, here is our path to success and kind of setting that, that vision. So that's kind of something that, you know, it's probably a little bit my fault is that often I just go into like problem solving mode because, you know, usually, I don't know, my experience is they're holding back all these problems. And then someone's here and they're just like, they're waiting for well, you. Yep. Right. And we, so you we just, see it as consultants all the time. Yeah. The, the new guy is starting on the 12th. We've know. got this. this, this. <laughs> so, so we're going to not tell this just... person about it for two weeks. And then at the two week mark, it just, we're going to unlock it. Right. I always love when they're like, oh, well, we'll just wait another week or two till you get your feet on the ground. It's like, no, no, I know it's coming. Just like, let it loose now. Brandon, you've mentioned four sort of main functions in most of the RevOps teams uh, you've led or been a part of. You mentioned specifically deal desk, your core operations, strategy slash analytics, revenue enablement. Paint me, first of all, the picture of um, the, the size of your team and how you kind of allocate different headcount or resources for these four sub teams in your RevOps function. Yeah. Um, I, I think we're, our current team is sitting roughly around 20 right now. Um, and, uh, as, as I'm, or I think we talked about this, I've been in Trotter for about four months. So I largely kind of inherited the team. And I think, you know, candidly, they're a big reason why I came there. They're incredible. Um, but I, I would, the deals team has uh, like two individuals, the core operations team is actually 
Uh, pretty, pretty big, I think is, and we also have the technical team, like the Salesforce team underneath us for the time being. So that that's included in that number. Um, we have say, um, like probably 12. Um, and then on kind of the deal strategy, we've got about four right now. And then at the enablement, we have two, um, and, but that's an area we're looking to invest. And I think one of the areas that is been interesting as I've, we've been working as kind of a leadership team here to think through what's the right way to set up our team is we're in a unique position because, and, and this is a little bit of history in Entrada is about a year ago, we decided to completely modernize our tech stack. Right. And so we, we had an internal like homegrown CRM. And so we're deploying Salesforce, deploying Groove is another one that we've deployed, um, Chorus and Zoom Info. Um, granted, they're kind of one product, but they kind of do separate things to an extent. Um, and a few other kind of small things. And, and, and then our reporting, we're using Domo for kind of our reporting analytics. So we basically deployed that. So we're very much in build mode for, you know, for this year and then probably for next year. And so like one of the things that, you know, I'm having conversations with the team is we start to think about what does your next year look like? Um, what is the following year going to look like once we start to get to steady state? Because, um, you know, that core operations team, like the hope is that that can actually level off really quickly and that you start to get scale um, and, and whatnot. And, uh, whereas the strategy will kind of just tick up, um, and kind of, you know, be aligned almost, uh, directly with, you know, the number of sellers or some, some sort of metric, right. That it supports, uh, and then enable it can kind of be the same way, um, to an extent. And so, uh, that is one of the challenges that I think we're thinking through is like, once we get kind of come out up for air out of this, just kind of frantic, build and roll out and, uh, and train kind of cycle, like, what does that look like? And we're going to have to adjust and kind of think through our organization because, you know, you're going to, you're going to want, uh, maybe to invest in other areas, uh, and, and kind of sh not necessarily shift that headcount, but like one of the lessons I brought from finance is nothing's worse than, um, you know, allocating a headcount to one space. Cause kind of once that, that, um, bell is rung, it's, I don't want to say it's stuck there. I mean, there's things you can do, but it's it's hard to take a deal desk person and turn them into a Salesforce architect, right? You just can't do that. And so like having some forethought when you're kind of designing your team is really, really important because nothing's worse than, you know, having too many people over here and not enough over here. And, you know, you, you've either got to make a hard decision or you've got to just kind of manage, retrain people, things like that. My sense is based on the expertise and background of maybe one of the founding um, RevOps leaders, there might be a disproportionate weight placed on one of these functional areas within RevOps than another. Maybe it's core operations if they came up being a Salesforce admin themselves. Uh, maybe it's deal desk if you know they've gotten a lot more uh, requests from sales. I'm interested in how you're thinking about that forward-looking planning, right? Specifically in terms of how you develop the next class of RevOps folks. What is the area that is the least the hardest perhaps to hire for and how do we foster you know a, a whole generation of new revops folks that can come in and sit in these roles and and also grow into other roles yeah and i i think there's a couple of ways to um kind of come about come come at this uh i remember one of my first finance jobs um i i had a boss that what she would do is there was like six of us, I think, and we each had our assigned areas. Like I was over, you know, these products on revenue and this person was over these, you know, expenses, et cetera. And every six months we had to learn someone else's role. 
right? And it seemed a little inefficient. And then guess what? Like every year we had to rotate and take on, you know, something different. And it was a little extreme um, to an extent, but it also kind of got me thinking of like this importance of kind of learning each other's roles. The other thing too, is once one of us, like we had one individual, I remember she went to India for like eight weeks, like took, saved up all our PTO. And then like, cause it was like a huge family event. So they, and, and it wasn't a big deal. We were able to support her and be able to do that because guess what? I was trained on half of her work and, you know, another peer was trained on the other half of our work and we were able to make it work uh, and support that. Um, so I think that's one area that in developing, especially in RevOps is just give them exposure. Um, I mean, even to an extent, let them like take on certain recurring tasks. Um, uh, and, and, and it's a great way to, to kind of learn that, especially when it's cross-functional, right? So like take, for example, you know, a deal desk person, if we can pair them with like one of the strategy people say, we want to start thinking about, you know, do some analysis around discounting behavior, right? Well, we'll buddy them up with someone over here on the strategy side, help learn that skill set and be able to kind of develop that. Right. Um, and cause there is a lot of overlapping in, in all the areas, uh, and, and then the other thing too is, you know, I think anything you can do kind of centrally um, to develop those core skills is beneficial, right? Um, I've done this in numerous times at kind of old jobs. We, um, most of the places I've worked have been kind of tableau shops. And so like me and, you know, other folks on the team that were experts, we'd kind of put on a weekly training, right? To help bring people up that wanted to learn. Um, you know, we've had, uh, you know, SQL trainings and things like that. Anything you can do to kind of, really foster the ability to learn that. So that's one piece. Uh, our second piece is kind of this uh, ability to give them access to learning kind of skills, like really kind of hard skills. Um, one of the things I've done, in, and, and then, sorry, the third one is is I like to take team meetings, our team, because our team's pretty big um, and, and make them um, about development, right? And there's, I think things you can do, um, you know, at my previous company at Lucid, how we had set it up, um, which, you know, kudos to our leadership team. They were the ones that really pushed for this. And I think it was really impactful was we'd have, you know, one week out of every month, um, we'd bring in an executive from the company and we'd ask them a bunch of questions about kind of their career. Um, you know, some, like some of the questions that you're asking me, right? Like what was one of the challenges that you learned from things like that. And people found that really, um, uh, motivating, but then like learned a ton. I personally learned a ton, like moderating some of these, uh, we then on another week we'd have, um, some sort of training, right? So I would do like how to present an effective or how to do a effective PowerPoint presentation, right? Or something like that, how to present to executives um, and some of those types of things. Uh, and then uh, also giving opportunities on the team to present some of their projects, right? Because um, one, it gives them a chance to practice presenting. Two, it gives um, gives exposure to, hey, like I'm over in deals team. That's a really interesting thing that you did to like, that segmentation analysis, like that was really illuminating, educating. So one, you know, you start to get, learn what the other people are doing. Um, and, you know, and, and, but two, uh, you start to develop skills, right. As a result of it. So those are kind of general ways that, you know, as a leader, I've tried to do it now as an individual contributor, like my advice really is, um, you know, look for, seek those opportunities. I always joke, like, with interns, you have like this unique ability or like opportunity to where you can kind of just say, I'm just an intern. And you can literally like send, I've seen interns send out emails to, you know, senior leaders in the company and be like, Hey, I'm an intern. Can I spend 30 minutes with you and just pick your brain? And I generally they'll say yes. Right. And you get a great opportunity 
um, to be able to pick their brain. Now you need to be prepared and you need to like, don't just sit there and be like, well, like illuminate me, right? You should have your questions prepared and things like that. Um, but I think that that, you know, that, and I use interns, but like even new hires, right? Um, even tenured hires, right? Like there's been times where, um, I mean, I, sometimes I, you know, I get stuck in the whole, like, can't teach an old dog new tricks kind of thing. And, but like force myself to say, Hey, you know what? Like my boss is, you know, pretty awesome. And has learned a ton has had some great experiences. Like maybe I'm just going to take one of my one-on-ones and just be like, Hey, can I just pick your brain for a bit and learn from you kind of a thing. So don't be afraid to ask for it. You are sharing so many amazing gems, Brandon. And oh my goodness, structural things we can do as leaders and as a team, the rotational program that makes me think of, for example, uh, AT&T's leadership program or um, how McKinsey always has consultants kind of rotate through different uh, topic areas. Uh, And also the personal things that we can do, joining a new company, starting out in RevOps, uh, really, really (laughs) stirring words. Um, I know you've mentioned, hey, you've got this team that you're growing curious if you are hiring in the near future and what kinds of roles you might be looking out for out there. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're right now kind of going through our annual planning process and determining exactly kind of the exercise that I just laid out of where we're going to be hiring. Um, we will definitely be, um, growing the team, not just my team, but like, I think broadly here at Entrada, uh, we have pretty aggressive growth goals and, um, seeing really a ton of success. So, um, you can always go to Entrada dot com or just search for Entrada careers and keep an eye out there. So, I mean, we're going to be growing probably across the board, um, in, in our organization in the coming, you know, 12 to 18 months. Oh, exciting. That's fantastic. Uh, Brandon, I'd love to shift to an area that we see a lot of RevOps teams get involved with, which are cross-functional corporate level initiatives. Um, in your RevOps roles, have you owned cross-functional corporate level initiatives? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I've you know owned, but then also participated in. Right at some point, it. I don't know. Maybe this is just my experience. I've I tend to find myself in involved in most of the cross-functional roles because most large cross-functional projects aren't going to include some go-to-market aspect. Um, and so generally, like I become the I don't want to say victim, but I become the participant, uh, the the volunteer. Uh, on on many of these projects. Now, a couple of the ones that that you know jump out that that we've driven, uh, or maybe I'll maybe I'll pull one from uh, my days at. Uh, well, no, you know I'll pull one one of the things from right now. One of the big uh, projects, and um, this one I'm actually not um, leading holistically, but I'm like kind of driving the go to market side of it, which is you know a new pricing and packaging. Um, initiative here at Entrada, right? Entrada is, for those who aren't familiar, we are a property management solution uh, for the multifamily and student housing market. Um, and so we really are like an ERP that runs your entire business. Um, and as such, we have a very broad um, array of products and a suite of um, uh, of products. And I, I don't know exactly, but last I counted, there was like 64 different products, um, which is awesome. Um, from an expansion standpoint, but like from an enablement standpoint is really difficult, right? When a new rep comes in, it's really like, it's really hard to ramp them um, on that. And so not only from a, and then even from a product and strategy standpoint, it's really hard to support so many disparate products, right? And so by being able to create kind of 
I don't want to say bundles because that's oversimplifying it, but I think it is an analogy that we can kind of roll with um, to get a sense. But by creating kind of these packages, it not only gives our customers um, kind of a an easy way to understand our portfolio, but also our sellers. Like they can really start to just learn a lot of these um, packages. Um, and so one of the things that you know we've been driving is the product side has been kind of handling kind of the technical aspect. Um, but on like, okay, now that you've kind of developed these packages, we obviously were riding along and helping, um, providing feedback and saying, Hey, yeah, this, this goes here. This one is like, so typically removed. It probably makes sense to keep that all a card, et cetera. Um, so we obviously provided feedback, but now it's like, how in the world do we roll this out? Right. It's just so, such a massive initiative. And it goes back to that very first question, right. Of setting clear expectations, you know, how do we want to roll it out to our existing product portfolio, excuse me, our existing customers? How do we want to, um, you know, uh, deal with this from a pricing perspective, right. If they're on a legacy pricing and this new, you know, package is going to, you know, result in a price increase, should we, um, you know, have some separate rules there, um, and so uh, we've been partnering very closely because we want to make sure that we're um, aligned with the whole team, right? I don't want to go through and create a whole discounting policy on converting customers to this new packaging. And, you know, and then we go do that and execute on it. And then we go pull the data and the product team and really the whole, the project team sees like the average price is like massively discounted, right? Or something like that. It's like, well, we had created this discounting process and et cetera. Like, great. Like let's align on that in advance um, type of things. So, um, you know, it's just been very critical to be kind of communicating back and forth. And then how do we kind of roll it out in a way that sales can consume it? Our systems are prepared um, to be able to handle this. I mean, taking what was kind of an a la carte system to now kind of bundling um, technically is, uh, I mean, it's pretty difficult. Right. I mean, we have some, we have an amazing Salesforce team that's building this out and building out this functionality. Um, but you've got to make sure that that's all prepared because the other questions too is, okay, that's great. I understand the theory here, but how do I go quote it? What do I do? Right. And so you're making sure you can answer the day-to-day questions. So I kind of took that a little bit roundabout, but I think ultimately these cross-functional projects, like the key is um, making sure you're having clear communication um, and, and pulling in, in the people into kind of the core decisions. I like any of these cross-functional projects. I think the ones that are most successful have this like concept of a steering committee, right. Where it's like, you're meeting and you're meeting more frequently than you ever thought you needed to, but it's massively beneficial. Like you have a weekly steering committee meeting, steering committee meeting, and you're talking through, okay, you know, here's the projects that we went through. Here's the decisions we made. Does everyone, you know, any concerns? Okay, great. Let's keep moving forward. And so that coordination is so critical. And candidly, like I can't plug a project manager um, enough on this, on those types of things, right? Because you know, RevOps, unfortunately, we 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 often go overlooked um, from a project management standpoint. They tend to be in like IT or deal with like you know pro uh, like product type um, projects. Uh, one of the things too, is, you know, I want to hire a project manager because they just add such a, they're, they're so impactful. And so bringing in them to this process just takes it, takes so much off your plate and make sure you can kind of run it efficiently. Cause it's just so hard. I mean, we've probably all done in our careers where you not only have your day job, but you're also project managing at the same time. And it ends up resulting in like less than stellar project management and like even impacting some of your day job stuff too. I really like what you said about 
you know, getting the cadence of steering committee meetings right, and that you probably need more than you're actually going to schedule uh, yep. to, especially in these cross-functional initiatives. It's easy to it's easy to cancel a meeting. It's hard to schedule one last minute when you have like lots of senior level or a big team and things like that. Brendan, I want to shift gears a bit. Um, you've had this incredible journey um, working for very different sized companies, and you've also had different experiences of preparing for board presentations or actually presenting to the board. Can you give me a sense of what that board interaction is like um, in different sized companies as a RevOps leader? And how does yeah. the preparation differ? Um in in all honesty, I mean, I think the, and I don't, I haven't spent enough time with a ton of founders, but at least in my experience, um, uh, one of the things that I see is almost like this thought that oh, well, we're early stage, it's okay if our board presentation is a little janky or a little like subpar, right? But in reality, like your board deck shouldn't be any different or any less um, quality than you know a Fortune five hundred company now. You know, it may be a little bit shorter just because you probably have less a smaller product portfolio or things like that. But there's no reason it shouldn't mimic and mirror kind of that level of professionalism um, and and really the general uh, criteria. Look, the purpose of a board meeting is, you know, these folks have invested money into you and you're you're basically conveying this is what happened and this is why and this is what we're going to do about it. That's it. Right. Um, and so really making sure I've seen too many board presentations or, um, you know, investor calls. Uh, even even at a public company level, like you know, uh, obviously ha- coming from finance, I spent a lot of time listening to public company um, uh, investor calls, uh, and even at even at that level, um, it amazes me of how often you see people just like showing charts or showing schedules that they kind of just want to show that are interesting, but don't actually fit the narrative, right? And so the like being really meticulous of saying, you know, first and foremost, you need to have. Like, this is how we evaluate our business, right? These are the metrics that matter. And those are the ones that you're consistently showing, right? And and that's how you manage your business. And granted, like this should actually be a discussion in the early, early days with your board of, this is how we want to measure our business. Do you agree? And getting their feedback. It doesn't always have to be this one-way conversation, but you know, I found the most successful partnerships, um, like our CEO... Um, is or CRO, whatever, you know, some C-suite is consistently like soliciting advice from, you know, your board, right? Especially pre-IPO, like that's what they're there for. They want to help you. They want you to succeed. And so like leverage their expertise, right? Um, so you kind of set this core metrics. And then from there, everything is um, like what happened on those and supplementing like the results, right? Seems simple, but it's um, it, it's easy to get distracted. Now, the other thing that I think is important, and this is not just, this doesn't just apply to like boards or, um, you know, investor calls, but can also apply to just like presenting to an executive team or, you know, a leadership team is, um, I remember this personally. So I worked, um, as I mentioned, our central FP&A team at, at Amazon and our board deck was, I mean, you can go look at them now. They're not that long. I I, I don't know, maybe 50 slides, I think is is the one that they present. But the binder that our investor relations team and our team would put together, I mean, these things were like hundreds and hundreds of pages thick, right? Because what we're trying to do is be prepared for the questions that come. Like obviously in a, a, a you know a public company investor call, it's like 
you have your kind of recorded presentation, then the questions. And so it's really there. But in a pre-IPO board meeting, it's very interactive, right? At least most of the ones that I've experienced where they're asking you questions real time. And so the, the one thing you want to do is make sure you have that back pocket schedule where if someone says, oh, that's great. Like, you know, you talked about your new logo versus expansion sales. Um, but, you know, tell me like, you know, we talked about on the previous slide, like your breakout by segment, but how does that, how is that happening by, um, you know, with a new logo versus expansion or something like that? Great. Well, oh, actually I've got this report right here. I can show you the data. I talk to the data, right? It's so much more effective than saying, I don't know, let me come back to you. And you've now kind of created this, like a bit of a janky experience to where now you've got to go find the information and like send it to them later and try to create the, continue the conversation. So the more you can do to prepare, plus like, um, especially like in a situation where, you know, your CEO has been probably working with these board members for a long time, like ask them or, you know, folks that have attended these, like, what does, um, you know, so-and-so like, what, what do they generally ask about? Right. What are the things that they care about? Um, and so then you can start to get to know the board members, um, and start to get to know, like what kind of questions they're going to ask. Right. Because that's the other thing too, is anticipating them, you know, you know, so-and-so is going to ask you about like, you know, how is your, you know, new logo expansion going. Well, let's be prepared for that because we know he's going to ask it because he does every board meeting, right? Kind of a thing. And so make sure you're prepared for those things. So like really kind of having that story and then the narrative that supports that story, you know, you have your core metrics and then the the narrative that supports that. And then you have the additional back pocket schedules that uh, like help you to respond to those questions and like, and knowing your board members to anticipate those questions is just, you know, I think super critical to being able to, um, have an effective meeting now. And I think that applies to, if, you know, you're a junior RevOps individual, I think it applies to the same thing. If you're presenting to, you know, your SVP of RevOps or your CRO, like the same applies, right? Ask, how is the CRO going to react to these things? What do you think? Um, and, and, uh, what do you think, uh, what kind of questions do you think they'll ask? Um, and you can do, you know, a formal exercise where you're almost like a, a mock. I mean, that's actually a big thing is like these mock earnings calls, pre-IPO companies, like you practice it for quarter after quarter after quarter. Um, so you're prepared and you do the same thing, like in advance of, you know, Hey, I'm presenting these slides. Like, why wouldn't you practice? Why wouldn't you have someone sit there and ask questions and, you know, try and, you know, it's role-playing is so critical in sales. It should be just as critical in RevOps too. Yeah, I love it. I've heard four main things. Less is more. Uh, be specific about the presentation or the metrics you're presenting on, but be prepared, have it in your back pocket to be able to explain more when the questions come. Um, do your research, understand your audience, understand your board members, find out from people who've done it before. Uh, and then last of all, of course, practice. It's really, really great tips. Thanks, Brandon. Yeah. So, so Brandon, you've shared so much on today's podcast. Um, I'm curious if you have a controversial opinion about RevOps or some RevOps myth that you want to bust. That's a great question. Um, a controversial. I mean, I think I don't know if this is controversial, but I I tend to find a little bit with my peers is you know I my approach has been I think different than a lot of peers in in uh, in the RevOps space is. Uh, you know, well, let me back up. RevOps plays a unique space to where we're both like support slash police person slash at you know judge, jury, and executioner, kind of all of the above, right? And so I think sometimes we um, we that clouds like what our relationship to be you know should be to our partners. And at the end of the day, like 
yes, we have, we have to create rules and, you know, ensure that, you know, like I'll just pick on sales. Like we're, we we got to create rules to make sure sales is, uh, not, you know, manipulating the system, not finding loopholes, but, you know, are helping us achieve, you know, our corporate goals. Um, but on the flip side, like we're there to support them. As, as well. So it is kind of a unique relationship. And so I find a lot of my peers tend to swing one direction and almost take a, like when rolling out a new process, new pricing, new comp plans. Um, when you roll out new comp plans, I'll take that. Maybe this is the hot take, but when you roll out new comp plans, like roll it out to your leaders and like, give them a chance to provide feedback. Right. And you'd be surprised actually, like, you know, you're, especially your leaders, they, they wear and they need to wear two hats. One is like supporting their people, but then also kind of supporting the company, right? And helping the company achieve its goals. Um, and so like really like deepening that partnership and like oversharing and transparency. I mean, now you gotta be careful because you can also derail their focus. If you're in Q4, you're really like need everyone heads down to go, hey, your number, maybe that's not the time to like roll out, hey, we're gonna increase quotas X amount, but you know, let them have a decision. You know, there's been times where we've we've rolled out and said, hey, you know, you kind of have, we have a couple options next year. Option number one is we really don't hire anyone, don't split territories, but your quota goes up 50%. Door number two is we raise your quota 5%, but we like add 30% to our headcount, right? And so we have to, you know, your territory shrinks and give them like some optionality. Now, you know, some we may ignore what they need to do because of, you know, long-term or short-term benefits, but like, involve them in the process, right? Uh, I think is just really beneficial, especially like when building territories and and some of those types of things. So that's probably, I guess, as hot take as you're going to get from me on that space. Yeah, that's great. And that speaks to fairness. And I th- anytime something doesn't feel fair, you're going to hear hear about it. People are going to be grumbling. They might even leave. And, and maybe it's a little bit of covering my own, um, covering myself is like, then when they participate, if the reps start to complain, I can be like, well, you're, you're, you know, your leader can, you can go complain to your leader. They helped make this decision. Now that's not actually the way I presented, but it actually drives a lot of buy-in in all reality when it's much easier for, uh, you know, a frontline sales leader to roll out, um, a new comp plan, uh, when they, they, they were part of it, you know, and, and they helped build it and they made decisions to get to it. Right. They're going to be much more bought in and can kind of convey that vision to their team than when it's like RevOps just threw this at us um, and we're just supposed to go take it and run with it. The final question we have around the RevOps specific topics here is looking ahead. Brandon, you've had so many experiences at different size companies, different growth stages. What is exciting for you about the future of RevOps? I mean, I think just continued uh, movement out of kind of the shadows into the forefront of the business, right? Like, I think I've seen that. Uh, I mean, that's what candidly enticed me into RevOps, right? Um, I think probably I've officially been in RevOps for probably seven or eight years now. Um, and uh, that was a big driver for me to kind of move from finance into RevOps was this chance to kind of really be at the forefront of of that kind of go-to-market strategy. <clears throat> And you see it with like CROs, like who's their right-hand person. It's like, you know, they're, they're head of RevOps. Um, and um, who's the, as I mentioned, who's the person that's sitting in all the product strategy meetings, right? Like RevOps is also there, right? And so I think that um, continued movement, and I, and I say it like a little bit tongue in cheek of out of the shadows into the light kind of a thing, but in all reality, like, I think that's happening. I mean, RevOps historically was seen very much as 
okay, you're the, you're, you're just like kind of back office that like makes the systems work, but instead, you know, we're really helping drive the strategy and making the decisions, um, in conjunction with, you know, the various other go-to-market leaders, but we have a seat at the table. And so that's one thing that, that I, you know, I'm really excited about and continuing to see the types of talent that are being attracted, um, to the RevOps space. Like in the past, it was, you know, I mean, how many people have you met that are kind of has RevOps that have these non-traditional kind of backgrounds, which is great. And I, you know, I've learned from a ton of those, but actually starting to see, I think it brings a lot of um, credibility when you're, be able to recruit people directly out of like, you know, top universities, top MBAs to come into RevOps and bringing that kind of additional like intellectual capital into the space um, just further kind of accelerates that movement towards the forefront. So that's the thing that that I think I'm most excited about is just continuing to kind of have that seat at the table. And I think even in some places, I've seen a few companies that have a, um, I don't remember what their title is, but it's like a chief RevOps officer or something like that. I've seen a few of those and I think that's great, right? You now have a seat at the table, um, even, even higher, um, and you're part of the executive team and things like that. And so those are, that's probably the thing that I'm most excited about, um, is just getting more and more involvement in the broader strategy at the company. Awesome. Yeah. So Brandon, uh, the, the second part of the podcast, we like to focus on you and, and your story. Uh, you're based in Provo, Utah, you studied in Arizona, you studied in Utah, you did undergraduate in business, you did a, uh, an MBA in Seattle. Um, we we don't see a lot of people in RevOps that went the business course. Oddly, we see people that studied marine biology and all, all kinds of other things. So uh, it's kind of cool to see the, the business background. Your previous position was uh, VP of RevOps at Lucid. Um, I, I'm curious, how did you get into RevOps? Yeah. So as I mentioned, like I kind of started my career in FP&A and the reason for me, like finance was, was interesting because, and this was, there was like, I don't want to say soul searching. It's maybe a little too deep, but like a lot of kind of reflection on, um, I went into finance because I wanted to kind of be at the heart of the business. Right. Um, and you know, finance kind of is, you know, the numbers, it all comes down to, you know, money uh, is the reality. We're all for, for profit businesses. Um, and, uh, and it was as I was kind of doing my undergrad in finance, there were a lot of individuals that wanted to go kind of the investment banking route. And that just never appealed to me. And so it caused me to kind of be like, well, why, why is that? And so I identified like, well, I want to be at the heart of the business. Right. And I don't really care about the capital markets. And so that was kind of my first kind of realization. And then as I started working um, within that space, you know, spent time with CFOs, like that kind of seemed like the logical path for me. And then, and this is no offense to CFOs, but when I started thinking about that as a future career for me, it really just didn't seem appealing. Like I, I had spent a little bit of time working in accounting and that, you know, that's a big piece of, um, of a CFO's role. And that just wasn't kind of my path and what I wanted to. And so then I kind of started saying, well, what do I really like about finance? What have I liked this far in my career? It's, you know, making business, you know, data-driven, um, decisions, right. Um, you know, reviewing, you know, finding like, uh, you know, processes that are inefficient that can save money, save time. Um, you know, starting to think about like some of the strategy. And so I kind of like started identifying rather than thinking about like the role and what I want, it's like, what are the things that I like to do that I'm good at that, you know, I'm passionate about that excite me. And I started pulling those out and I said, okay, well, um, it was, you know, very 
I'll try to keep, you know, condense the story of how I started, but I um, was kind of like starting to look around, well, where do I want to go? Um, and at that point I had a good friend that had left Amazon and was at, at Qualtrics and said, Hey, come talk to some people here at, at Qualtrics. I was up in Seattle at the time and we were like, my wife and I were on kind of like a long weekend. And for some reason, like went into the office on a Monday on my vacation. I don't know why, um, but ended up coming in and started talking to these people. And um, my future boss basically kind of helped me identify of saying like, here's the things that you like, and let me show you how they fit directly into this role. Um, and so I was kind of like, this is really cool. And you're kind of front of house, right? Everything kind of uh, the buck stops with sales, right? If you can't sell the product, it doesn't matter how great of a product you have. You know, if you can't renew it, it doesn't matter you know, how amazing your processes and internal systems are, or your tech stack is, you name it. It's like, you've got to be able to, you know, sell it and renew it. That's the lifeline. And so being kind of in that, uh, in, in that realm was really exciting. Um, and so I kind of fell into it that in that sense, um, and, and made the jump and came down here to Utah and, uh, started working in kind of RevOps uh, at Qualtrics originally. Uh, and then ever since then kind of started to see like, oh, hey, there's this whole like psychology um, component to it, which was really fascinating, right? Like I've always loved like studying, um, you know, motivation and things like that, various things around that. And so you start to kind of understand, and then, you know, the deal side of the house, well, that's where I could leverage my finance background a ton of like, you know, how does Reverick play into play? How does Reverick come into these things? Um, and uh, and so like, it just felt like, I, hey, this takes my core skill set that I really enjoy and leverages that. I can also take my experience, bring that into it. Um, and, you know, candidly, I was, I was a little less concerned about RevOps. We wanted to be at Qualtrics um, and thought it was just a great opportunity to kind of explore that front of house. How awesome to have a mentor spend that time and point you in the direction of things that you enjoy most. I mean, I, I, I just love hearing stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, he was biased too, to be clear. He was trying to hire me. So like, <laughs> but that's uh, okay. That's like... okay. <laughs> But he was still a great, he still is a great mentor. We go have lunch quite frequently. Our last question, Brandon, um, speaking of mentors, is who are some of the RevOps leaders out there that you admire, who you think should be on this podcast? One of the the two individuals that I'll call out um, that are maybe I'm a little biased that have been somewhat mentors for me is an individual named Spencer Dent. He created a company called Close that does win-loss analysis. Um, he's been a close friend for a long time. And uh, I think, you know, they're doing some really cool stuff in that space of, you know, why are we winning and losing deals? Like, that's just incredibly insightful. Um, and then an individual um, named Dan Watkins was a sales leader uh, when I was at Qualtrics and someone that, you know, just personally, I, I really look up to and have learned a ton from, but he... Um, he like cr created one of the most efficient sales organizations I've ever seen. Um, and uh, he, he is not your traditional sales leader um, in that, like he really delves into the operation side of things. Um, it's very programmatic. I mean, his, the way he would hire individuals was like very, not only like he used a rubric, they had, you know, had um, a rating scale um, and it was very like qualitative, uh, excuse me, quantitative. Um, uh, that was, I, I, I've never seen anything like it. And so those are two individuals that, you know, technically they're not in RevOps, but, you know, they work and service the industry and have worked in the industry. Um, and, and they're two individuals that, that I totally look up to and, um, and admire. Great shout outs, Brandon. And we'll be sure to include their LinkedIn profiles in the show notes for anyone who's interested to potentially learn more, reach out, uh, and, and borrow from what they've built. Cool. 
So Brandon, where can people find you? Are you on social media, LinkedIn? Yeah, I mean, LinkedIn is probably the best place. Like, I guess I'm technically on other social media sites, but not really. So um, LinkedIn is probably my most active page. So it's just, you know, look up Brandon Bussey and you can generally find me there. And how about learning about Entrada? Uh, just our website, right? Entrada, I mean, I think it's 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 a unique animal, but um, because we service, you know, the real estate and uh, industry, but uh, uh, but definitely like go to, go to the website Entrada.com um, and you can learn about our product portfolio. Well, awesome. Brandon, uh, what a pleasure it's been. I have learned a lot in speaking with you today. I have a bunch of things to think about. One of the things you talked about earlier about the definition of RevOps being defined, you know, essentially by the periphery. So if you have a large FP&A or a large finance team that will impact what the RevOps team takes on. Uh, I think we see a lot of organizations, whether it's because of politics or other things, uh, define the shape of the RevOps team, certainly where uh, an organization is in their evolution as well. Uh, you give me a lot to think about. So I, I'm so appreciative of you joining us uh, on this, uh, this podcast today. Great. I, I mean, take the take a nugget here or there, right? Like these are things that I've learned. Um, they may not be applicable, or maybe you take them the opposite way and say, "Ah, that was that was terrible advice." I'm going to do the opposite. So, um, you know, take it for what it's worth, and hopefully, I can. Um, I'm happy to be a resource ever for anyone that listens, and uh, just reach out to me on LinkedIn. Amazing. And if to our audience, if you've learned as much as we've learned today, Brandon shared a lot of gems reporting to the board, um, building the next generation of RevOps folks. Um, please share this podcast with someone you know in RevOps who uh, get value out of it. And of course, um, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. We're so glad to have you here on the show today, Brandon. Thank you. Appreciate it. And this has been another value-packed, action-item-packed, exciting episode of RevOps Rockstars. And see you next time. Stay classy, rock stars. And that wraps up another episode. Thank you so much for joining us. For show notes and other episodes, visit RevOpsRockstars.com. RevOps Rockstars is sponsored by OptFocus. Visit OptFocus.com to learn more about how OptFocus helps SaaS companies scale their revenue operations.